0: What a stupid thing to say. Yeah. Hi, I'm Nate Perlmeter, and you're listening to What a Stupid Thing to Say, the show where we make uncompromisingly stupid claims about pop culture and take up the treacherous, destructive task of backing them up. Today, we're talking about the sitcom, that dependable, consumable organism that, whether we like it or not, is the most American art form. Not the great American art form, that's still jazz, but the most American. We want pretty people being funny by solving unimportant problems in and out in 22 minutes, or 30 if you're fancy and on HBO. They're the fast food of storytelling, efficiency, and entertainment. In thinking about how much I love sitcoms, how many hours of my life I've spent staring into their vacuum, I've realized that there are two types of sitcoms, divided by how they seek to provide that entertainment that is their raison d'etre. The first type, the more basic, is the one that exists only for funny, with every line of dialogue and on-screen event being part of a joke. Example: Seinfeld. The other type aims differently, obviously having the jokes a sitcom definitionally needs, but also dealing in emotion, delivering entertainment and payoffs by wrapping us up in stories about characters that we come to care about. If it ever made you go, ah, it's in this category. Example, Friends. Today's claim, the latter category is better. The ideal sitcom is a cuddly one. My good man, I'm afraid I must take umbrage with the idiocy you're presently spewing. Excuse me? I think it's patently obvious that the superior among the two varieties of sitcom is the one that is solely for jokes and doesn't bother with emotional payoffs. And who are you? Why, I'm you. Hmm? I'm the part of your brain that has this opinion. Uh-huh. And what's with the voice then? Are, are you Daniel Day-Lewis? Are you Kramer? It's very inconsistent. I challenge you to a battle of wits. Okay. How do we start? It starts when you decide and we both drink. And then we will see who is right and who is dead. Walked right into that one. First things first, we must define the word sitcom so that we're on the same page. A sitcom, or situation comedy, is a humorous TV show that follows an established set of characters through each half-hour episode. The comedy comes from the new and different situation that in each episode befalls the familiar characters. Some definitions hold that it's only a sitcom if it has four cameras and a laugh track, which is stupid. So, for our purposes, we'll be including single-camera shows like, say, The Office. Acceptable. Now to my opening statement. We are agreed on a conception of the sitcom as constraint. You're not gonna be Tolstoy, you have a half hour to make the audience laugh. So make them laugh. Pull out every trick in the book, physical comedy, wordplay, do whatever you gotta do. Make a bunch of shit happen to the characters and let them exasperatedly respond. If you do it right, the Seinfeld model, the 30-rock model, they could really be laughing the whole time. And that speaks to the talent and effort of the writers and creators. It is so difficult to craft an actually funny joke, especially in the Biden era where bits have been outlawed. To craft 50 or 60 of them that flow perfectly across a half hour, that's the closest the sitcom form ever gets to achieving artfulness. Meanwhile, your emotional payoffs, your, oh no, she has a boyfriend, your Ross and Rachel kissing in the rain, you can get that anywhere. Might as well watch a soap opera or a lifestyle vlog. It's cheap, it's the boring, easy way to grab the audience's attention. I'm not saying it doesn't work, it works on me, but what's more valuable? Wondering if two people are gonna make out, and really knowing they will eventually make out, and then seeing them make out, or the beauty of a joke you've never heard making you laugh your ass off. Werewolf bar mitzvah, spooky scary, boys becoming men, men becoming wolves. Really good jokes are a thing to be cherished. A sitcom has, has to have a story, of course, but it should serve jokes because when it doesn't, it's a disposable story. Why am I watching this, except to be manipulated by a feeling of care for some milk-toast people who don't exist? I'm not saying there's not worth to any fiction that portrays great love stories, titanic battles, any of the many stories that drive in human ingenuity and aren't necessarily funny. They have their place in movies and novels. I'm saying sitcoms don't need them and can't pull them off. So why bother with them? Do I get an opening statement? You may respond to mine. Sure. So you're claiming that a sitcom that indulges in heartwarming moments- Hold on, this is getting needlessly verbose. Can we think of nicknames for the two sitcom subgenres from here on out? Good idea. I'll call my preferred subgenre The Cuddler. And I will call mine The Joker. Fine. So, you're claiming that a cuddler is necessarily a less pure, less rarefied vehicle for the art of joke-making than a joker is. Now, I think that's untrue for reasons I'll get into, but first of all, even if it was right, it wouldn't matter. Because jokes aren't the only way that sitcoms can deliver value. The image of old Americana where the family gathers around the enormous 12-inch screen to watch Jackie Gleason it means something. Sitcoms are this sort of accessible refuge that we all have in this weary world. They're a sort of comfort. They're like a security blanket, hence my word the cuddler. It's a little oasis, this fractured reflection of weird life, where, yes, people have interpersonal problems, and yet they're always solvable, and that can maybe get us in the right headspace to solve our own, or at least to hide from them for a while. When we follow a plot like Leslie and Ben on Parks and Rec, We're laughing at their idiosyncratic personalities, yes, but we're also investing in their highs and lows, cheering when they finally hook up, and when the episode ends with a dramatic kiss or whatever, we've got that to schmooze about with friends. We're left with that, yeah, we achieved it feeling you get when you beat a video game or finish a book. There's further net value to having watched the half hour of programming in addition to the laughter. You come away with something. It lingers. And that's a credit to any work of fiction. Well, you can come away with that feeling from straight-up genius comedy, too. Think of those really tight Joker episodes where the whole thing is building up to one big punchline. Like in Curb, where Larry has pissed off four or five separate people, and they're all yelling at him simultaneously, and the different conflicts play off each other, and that music plays da-da-da-da-da-da, and you're laughing long into the credits. The end result is greater than the sum of the individual moments, and that's the greatest thing to come away with. Nothing makes a smile harder than a really exceptionally good joke, one that actually surprises us and isn't just lazy, flirting-based humor, like, could you be a little faster, please? That's not what you said last night. Okay, what is that example from? I don't know. Cheers? Like, that probably was said on one or another episode of Cheers. I admit that, but I don't think that jokers have the monopoly on deep, complex jokes that are more than the sum of their parts. I would actually argue that cuddlers have an advantage here, because sitcoms are all about characters, and the way that cuddlers get really involved with their characters gives them more depth, and thus more to spin jokes off of. It's a cliché at this point to say that your favorite sitcom characters feel like your actual friends, and resultantly, you can mine as much humor from them as you can from actual friends. Like, for example, and friends barely sounds like a word anymore, but think about the best episode of Friends. Of course. The one where no one's ready. A a gag-a-minute episode that scarcely moves the Ross-Rachel love plot forward, but has a great time indulging in delicious tangents, like, Look at me! I'm Chandler! Could I be wearing any more clothes? No. See, the best episode is the one where everyone finds out, middle of season 5, where the gang learns that Monica and Chandler are hooking up and suss it out through an elaborate scheme. It's only because we're so deep into our relationships with Phoebe and Chandler that it's so funny when she pretends to seduce him. We're watching these two people we know well be hilarious, because our prior knowledge of their personalities makes the circumstance hilarious. Once again, jokers pull that off too. You don't need sentimental material to build 3D characters. Think of Mac in Always Sunny. He's a richly portrayed, multifaceted portrait of toxic masculinity, and it's because of that that it's so funny in the later seasons when he's maybe gay. Funnier, even, than your friend's example, because sunny characters get to be so much more outlandish than Friends characters, since they're not required to be relatable and sympathetic. Here's an illustration. My favorite sitcom character ever, bar none, is George Costanza. Who's yours? Well, actually, it would have to be Chandler Bing. Of course. But Chandler's just watered down George, the loser driveless, misanthropic, described by the writers as hopeless with women despite pulling consistently throughout the series, and connected to the world only through a sarcasm he willingly and regularly unleashes on his small circle of enabling friends. Aha, but here's the difference. Chandler, through the power of long-term sentimental plotting, manages to rise above that description. He marries Monica, gets over his fear of commitment, and switches careers to one he genuinely enjoys. It's a model exploration of how this sardonic nihilist character archetype can come into his own and become a genuine, fully-formed adult. It's a nice character arc. Chandler is not a good example for your claim that cuddlers can't achieve salient writing. Shit, there's something for all of us to learn from Chandler's example. But there's something to learn from George, too. Specifically, just how awful people can be. I mean, here is this man who leaves an on-fire child's birthday party without making sure any of the children are okay, who causes a block-wide pile up because he was trying to make a quick buck parking strangers' cars. Obviously it's funny, obviously it's cathartic. I'd also raise that in terms of values inculcation, George gives us this sterling example of what not to be. No, he never grows, he only grows more disgusting. And it only gets funnier and more pointed in its depiction of the sociopathy we all nonchalantly abide in current society. You give me marrying Monica, I give you almost marrying Susan and then killing her by buying cheap postage stamps that she can't lick without dying. And all that deft characterization is achieved without wasting a single line of dialogue on sentiment. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because when we think of your top examples of Joker's, uh, Seinfeld, Curb, Always Sunny... Maybe sometimes veep. Uh, of course faulty towers. Alright, settle down. Well, especially with those toppermost ones, there's this thread that the protagonists are awful, awful people. I mean, Sonny is like an exaggerated Seinfeld where they wear the violent psychopathy on their sleeve, and in Curb, while Larry is relatable and not a villain, he's still an asshole, and the show consists of him getting in squabbles with people. Couldn't you say that that's sort of a narrow set of human interactions to work with? Lots of people aren't assholes. It's a situation comedy. Isn't there worth to examining how decent, more immediately relatable people react to situations? When everyone's an asshole, it makes it much more difficult to see it as a blanket, to make it the thing that cheers you up when you only have a half hour of TV after a long hard day. Sometimes I'm not in the mood for those shows at all. And that's a matter of taste. For me, it is comforting because it's escapist, Like in Curb, when Larry steals the golf club from the Funkhauser Corpse. No, that's not something I'd ever do. No, it'd never even cross my mind to do something that revolting. Yes, it's funny when he gets his comeuppance, but yes, it's also funny when he's actually doing it, because here the Joker is acting as a space where we can harmlessly play with the edges of human behavior, with doing things that are objectively funny but that we could never see in real life because they're too outrageous. Your characters, who must remain likable, don't get to do fun stuff like stealing golf clubs from corpses. And it's not like you even need these assholes to be a good joker. Look at 30 Rock. Liz is great. Well, maybe 30 Rock is sort of a hybrid, because she does grow in that standard learns-to-commit-to-romance arc. Yeah, but always at the service of jokes. Now, let's talk about How I Met Your Mother. I'm happy to talk about How I Met Your Mother. Seven years later, people forget how sharp the writing was on that show. All the gimmicks with Bob Saget narration, the flash forwards, the weed is sandwiches thing. It all works really well and makes for these postmodern jokes that live side by side with the normal rom-com sitcom tropes. And there it's really only possible because we care about Ted's love life. So we're glued to the couch paying extra attention to all the play with the space time continuum. Like there's one where it flashes forward to them quote unquote eating a sandwich in 2024 And Ted is so high, he blurts out, where is my wife? It's funny as a the characters are high type simple joke. And it adds a clue to the game the audience has of teasing out the timeline. And it becomes doubly, really darkly funny when you rewatch and know that Ted's wife is dead when he blurts that out. It's a continuity joke. And it's one on an impressive Arrested Development type level. A great joker. And once again, it only works and is that funny because we care about the How I Met Your Mother characters. Ah. But what of the How I Met Your Mother finale? Ah, Jesus. Reviled. Scum. In the top two lowest-rated TV episodes in the history of IMDb, along with a non-sitcom finale I won't dare mention by name. And why is it so bad? Because it doesn't stick the landing. Because the endings given to our beloved characters are not satisfactory. Because the payoff is bad. Well, that terrible misfortune we all suffered in 2014 was only possible because we were expecting an emotional payoff. Because cuddlers have to have their happy or at least bittersweet endings. Jokers evade that problem. A lot of people don't like Seinfeld's finale. They're wrong, but it's a valid opinion. Even though they don't like the finale, the show isn't retroactively ruined. How I Met Your Mother isn't retroactively ruined, either. It's a choice to think that it is. And you're only making a further point in favor of how great it can be, how much of a zeitgeist moment it can be, when a cuddler does stick the landing. I mean, one decade after another, the finales of MASH, Cheers, and Friends were cultural watersheds, Super Bowl-like events that bonded America. And even the streaming era, we've got similarly great finales like Parks and Rec, recently The Good Place, even The Office has a good finale. You know, Steve Carell's back for like 10 seconds. Ah, The Office. Thank you for making my next point for me. Seasonal Decay. Cuddlers do not own Seasonal Decay. Jokers have it too. Always Sunny has been running for 100,000 years. No one thinks it isn't what it used to be because its premise hasn't been played out. The Office started going downhill once its main plot, Will Jim and Pam Get Together, got resolved at the end of season three. How about Modern Family? There's only so many fights Cam and Mitch could have. There's a certain immortality achieved when a show knows it has no pathos. It makes you like SNL. Or Garfield. Yeah, and it also makes individual episodes more dispensable. Cuddlers can pull off cliffhangers, you know. Back in the day, everyone tuned in Same Bat Time, Same Bat Channel to Family Matters to find out if Laura was going to end up with Steve Urkel or Stefan Urkel. In terms of the emotions you can get from watching TV, nothing beats that paradoxical, satisfied frustration of fuck, I can't believe the episode's over, I wanted to see what happens next. Dramas have that, cuddlers have that, jokers do not. You know what jokers have? Stories that aren't about love or sex. Cuddlers have other plots accompanying the love and sex. Office Season 5. Everyone remembers Jim's proposal. No one remembers what Idris Elba was doing. What about the Michael Scott Paper Company? That was a whole thing. Doesn't that strike you as being equivalent to what you were accusing me of earlier? You said that uh, the problem with Jokers is assholes are only a narrow sliver of humanity. Well, isn't chasing romance only a narrow sliver of the human experience? Uh, I'd say it's a pretty big sliver. It's not everything, but I guess at that point it's a question of genre preference. And there's something special cuddlers do in this arena. Now, you and I both love rom-coms, you know, rom-com movies, that is. Duh, they're great. They are. And in a way, cuddlers do them one better. A two-hour rom-com has to keep the flirting at a high octane for all two hours. There's no room for any other subject matter or subplots. A cuddler does this nice parallel to real life where love and sex is often on the characters' minds, but they do have to contend with other stuff, like the printer malfunctioning and it's hilarious when the printer malfunctions, and then they make out, something for everyone, total package. And besides, this sex-is-everything phenomenon is really only present in adult group of friends or coworkers sitcoms. What about that other cuddler subgenre, the ones about families and children? iCarly, Boy Meets World. All in the Family, of course, is the leader in terms of sitcoms that did any actual societal good, and it's certainly a cuddler. Well, hold on. Boy Meets World is one thing, but I'm not sure iCarly and All in the Family are good examples for you. I mean. The characters don't really have long-term arcs, but that's not the argument we're having. The question is whether the show devotes time to sentimentality or not. Sentimentality can be expressed in the vacuum of one episode, regardless of character arcs. I'd venture any show as a cuddler if episodes have, like, a lesson learned. Well, that's semantically dangerous, because then you could call any show a cuddler. I mean, we were talking earlier about how every episode of Seinfeld and Sunny teach a lesson. The lesson is, don't be like these people. I think the question is more directly about usage of time. If there's substantial time without jokes, that's your cuddler. Fine, but I'm still unconvinced that jokers are necessarily funnier. You have this boner up for Jerry Seinfeld's no-hugging-no-learning philosophy, which yes, worked great on that specific show, but we haven't even mentioned yet maybe the most joke-dense sitcom ever, and that's one that totally has hugging and learning. I mean, the show I'm talking about, it wrote the postmodern rule rulebook on what you can do as a sitcom. Every second pulsates with visual jokes and slapstick and wordplay. Every line is a catchphrase to at least one group of nerds somewhere or other. But it still makes time for the idiot father character to realize he's making a mistake and help his son with his science fair project and other sentimental moments like that. I'm talking about The Simpsons. Hold on. You didn't say we could include cartoons. Sitcoms are humorous TV shows that follow an established set of characters through each half-hour episode. That is what we agreed on. Didn't say anything about cartoons either way. So we're including cartoons. Well then, let's just claim some real quick. Fine. Bob's Burgers. Family Guy. You're voluntarily claiming Family Guy? It is my birthright. So it is. Uh, Adventure Time. Archer. Phineas and Ferb. South Park. Big Mouth. Rick and Morty. Rick and Morty has sentimentality. And it is not pulled off as well as the jokes. All right, I'll give it to you.
1: And of of course course I can lay claim to my my very favorite show, show, SpongeBob SquarePants.
0: You think SpongeBob's a joker? You think SpongeBob's a cuddler? SpongeBob and Patrick raise a baby clam together in a defiant celebration of gay marriage. And never for the entire 11 minutes of that season 3 episode, genius work of social satire titled Bye -bye Bivalve, does it let go. Never in the entire 11 minutes does it let go of its tongue-in-cheek style or explicitly spell out that message. It's all told through jokes, and that's as hard as the show ever goes in terms of social messaging. What sentimentality do you see in the existentialist Nightmare Buddy movie that is pizza delivery? Squidward stands up for SpongeBob at the end, as he does in so many episodes after realizing that SpongeBob's naivete is a necessary counterweight to his rational world wariness. The show is constantly teaching this great lesson about the complexity of growing up and the value of friendships in that journey and the acceptance of differences and cultivating those friendships. It doesn't teach that. It models it. You're only aware that you learned all that from SpongeBob because you're reflecting on it now, years after the fact. And the specific feeling of home, of comfort, of childhood you feel when you watch SpongeBob reruns, the reason it's your favorite show, the reason you keep returning to it, that's all fueled by the jokes, because there is scarcely a second of sentimentality time in that show that doesn't have a joke payoff. When you're watching the show, you're not taking all these ramifications in. You're laughing your butt off at Patrick getting hit by a bowling ball and yelling Finland! That doesn't mean that all that processing isn't part of what the show offers. It's the joke and the genuine feeling of warmth and optimism that makes it endure all these years later. Fine. We're both agreed that SpongeBob is perfect. From seasons one to three. From seasons one to three. So where do we stand now? After all that... After plumbing the depths, I fear neither of us has moved much. Sure, we can agree on Spongebob as the best show in the history of television, but in terms of general trends, my favorite sitcoms are still the ones that are all about the jokes. And mine have a little lovey-doveyness. We may never agree. Yes. Good thing we are, in fact, the same person. My name is Nate Perlmeter, and I hope you enjoyed this different format for this episode of What a Stupid Thing to Say. I figured having two of me would maximize the amount of dumb things I could say total, which is always the goal. Be well, stay safe out there, and go watch a sitcom. As if you weren't going to already. And now, our closing song. A friend's completionist must face some troubling facts You don't get the full thing on HBO Max Every episode has some extra bits So if you wanna see more flashbacks Or Joey's saying shit Then you gotta Get the DVD Cause every episode is longer Get the DVD Cause certain punchlines are much stronger Get the DVD Because the extra footage Can't be found on blue because they never shot it in HD only if you're like really into Friends but like if you can get your hands on like some DVDs like the season box sets from like the early 2000s like there's like three more minutes to every episode so like if you love Friends and you didn't know that like check it out